0: Well, good morning, and I am Pastor Rob, and let me say welcome again to Calvary Chapel Palos Verdes. Uh, it's great to be able to, to uh, be here and share God's word with you this morning. The last time I did this, there were only about 50 of us in our church, and now look at what God has done. Praise God. You know? And uh, he, they are so busy thanking other people, I think we need to take a second and thank Daniel and Leah for all that they've put in to make this happen. So it's. Uh, Pretty, You know, every single one of us here is getting to be part of a real movement of the Spirit of God as he is bringing us together in this awesome new church to worship him, grow in him, and bring others uh, to know him through Jesus. And Daniel has started us on what will probably be about a one-year journey uh, through the gospel of Mark. And if you noticed what a fast-paced gospel Mark is, I mean, we're only one and a half chapters into it, and look at what we've already covered. We've covered John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the temptation of Jesus, the proclamation of the Gospel, the calling of the first disciples, numerous healings, and forgiveness of sin. And one of the overall themes of Mark is that it presents Jesus as a servant. In fact, it is the only one of the Gospels which contains that well-known statement by Jesus that you can find in Mark 10.45, if you want to look it up, that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And that is mostly what we have seen him do so far, serve by meeting the physical needs and the spiritual needs of the people through preaching the gospel to them and healing them. And if you're describing or evaluating a servant, perhaps the most important thing you would want to know about them is what they can do and how much they can do and how well they can do it and how fast they can do it. And that's exactly what we've seen so far in the gospel of mark and that we will continue to see as we move forward this morning it's going to be a virtual whirlwind of activity through this book as jesus moves through the land meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the people and there's no reason to think that he has somehow stopped doing that just because the gospel of mark has been completed we can and we should still take our physical and spiritual needs to him today he even teaches us to do that in the lord's prayer where he says teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. You know, part of our problem today as Christians is that while we trust Jesus to solve the problem of our salvation, we really struggle sometimes with trusting him to solve all the other and comparatively much smaller problems in our lives. Things like healing us or providing us with food to eat or money to pay our bills. You know, our youngest daughter, Katie, Uh, had a missions trip to India when she was in high school. And she went to the southern part of India in Chennai, a very tropical area, very, very poor area. And they partnered with local churches in the area to take the gospel out and just do street evangelism. And these churches were so poor, they met in churches with dirt floors, uh, electricity that maybe worked three or four hours a day, battery-operated fans to deal with the heat. And they didn't have medicines or anything fancy there. And Katie came home so struck by the fact that the christian friends she had made there when they had a fever or when they had uh, a sore throat or they had uh, sore muscles they didn't have advil or tylenol they could go take what they had to do was pray and it really struck her that that was the first and the only thing they could do now certainly advil and tylenol are, are blessings from god and his greater grace but for some reason we seem to have forgotten the prayer part and god wants us to take even all those little needs to him Every day, because he can handle it, and it's part of how we build our relationship with him. So anyway, while Matthew, as you may know, primarily presents Jesus as king of the Jews and emphasizes his Jewishness and, and messianic prophecies and his kingly attributes, Luke primarily presents Jesus as the son of man and emphasizes his humanity, and John primarily presents Jesus as the son of God and emphasizes his deity, Mark, the gospel we're in, primarily emphasizes this servant nature of Jesus, and how as a humble servant he came to meet the needs of his people. And that's part of what we're going to see this morning as we find him hanging out again with common people, even scavenging for food like a poor person, and then addressing the spiritual needs of the ultra-religious people in his midst. Our section of scripture for this morning is Mark 2, 18-28. The title of the message, if we had a printed worship folder, would be this. It would be dead religion versus a joyful Living faith. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark two eighteen to twenty eight, uh, or find it in the online worship folder we have that you can get by accessing one of the QR codes posted everywhere, and let's read these ten verses and then talk about what they have to say. So, Mark two eighteen. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, "Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples?" do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, The wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wineskins one sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the pharisees were saying to him look why are they doing what is not lawful on the sabbath and he said to them have you never read what david did when he was in need and was hungry He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reveals you and your heart to us. We also thank you for how it reveals our heart to us, Lord. And I pray this morning as we go through these 10 verses that your spirit would work in and through us, Lord, to show us your heart and to show us where our hearts are at, Lord, that he might then line our hearts up with your heart, that, Lord, we might have the joyful living faith that Jesus came to bring. Bless each one here as we go through your word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's important always to set the stage for scripture. So to properly set the stage for what we're examining this morning, we need to remember what just happened before, what Daniel taught on last time. And that is that Jesus and his disciples had been enjoying a meal in the company of tax collectors and sinners at the house of Matthew after Jesus had called Matthew. And Jesus had just called him to be a disciple. And this was not As Daniel described last time, a formal prim and proper please pass the potatoes ma'am kind of meal with everyone sitting in their chairs, dressed in their Sunday best, with perfect posture, waiting to eat. As the passage before us this morning, the one we looked at last week, puts it, they were reclining at table. And as Daniel described last time, this meant actually lying on the floor around a table, probably with your head up against a pillow, eating with your fingers, and just chilling out with a bunch of friends. This was more like a modern kickback party than any kind of formal meal. So while the one who had been claiming to be God himself, since he said he had the power to forgive sins, which only God can do, is chilling out with common sinners, along come these people in verse 18, no doubt sent by the scribes and Pharisees, it's pretty clear from the context that they sent them, to ask this question, to try to discredit Jesus why do john's disciples and the disciples of the pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast there's no sense here that they're asking this question because they really want to know the answer but rather it's because they want to trap him trip him up or find something to discredit him with you know as people including us consider the claims of jesus and literally anything in the bible asking questions is fine God says in Isaiah 1:18, come, let us reason together. God's willing to and wants to have an open, honest dialogue with us about his truth. But there are two ways of asking questions about God or his word. One is to ask because you are truly searching for an answer and you really want to know the truth. The other, however, is because you're actually doubting God and you have a sneaking suspicion of what the correct answer might be, but you don't like it because it goes against your way of thinking or how you want to live your life. So you ask the question in a way to try to criticize God or his word. And that is exactly how this question is being asked here. The religious leaders had already concluded that they didn't like Jesus and that he was a threat to their authority and to their religion. And they think that they are much more righteous than he is. So they have these people come and ask this question, not because they truly want to know the answer, but rather because they want to highlight the difference between their own self-righteousness and all their fasting achievements and this Jesus whom they see as just someone cavorting around eating and drinking with sinners. It's a question that's designed to see to make them look good and to make Jesus look bad, which is usually what self-righteous people want to do. Now, we're going to look at the answer of Jesus in a moment, but before we do, Let me give you some more background to help us understand some things that are going on here. It's important that we understand as Christians that there are two primary pitfalls that we as Christians and actually as churches can fall into with regard to how we approach God and how we live our lives. One is what we might call the pitfall of legalism. And the other is what we might call the pitfall of licentiousness. Legalism is what we see in the Pharisees. It is that belief that you can do something to make yourself righteous in God's sight, or like that old 60s song said, working my way back to you, babe, that you can somehow work your way towards God. And it makes you think that you're a good person, and it makes you look down on others. Licentiousness is what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians in that church, a kind of a belief that since God's grace covers all of my sin, I can just live however I want. And you see, walking by grace through faith, which is what we're called to do, is kind of like walking on a narrow balance beam that a gymnast might walk on. And on one side of you is this pitfall of legalism. On the other side of you is this pitfall of licentiousness. And the only way to stay on that balance beam of grace and keep walking forward without falling into one of those pits is to keep your eyes squarely focused on Jesus, whom Hebrews 12.2 says, is the author and perfecter of our faith. And this morning, we're going to see some examples of falling into that pit of legalism. And we're going to look at how it happens, and we're going to look at what the consequences of it are, and we're going to look at how to get out of it and stay out of it. So now look at the answer without understanding that Jesus gives to the question of why he and the disciples are not fasting. He says in verse 19, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, to better understand this answer, it helps to review a few things about fasting, as well as a few things about Old Testament Jewish weddings, and also about how God described himself to his people in the Old Testament. Fasting, you see, can be called for for a number of reasons. It can be associated with a time of repentance or as part of an extended prayer time. Esther 4.16 has a very interesting reason for fasting. We see there that Esther fasted in preparation for approaching the king. And the overall purpose of fasting, no matter what the, the particular cause of bringing it about was, was to use the time and the energy that otherwise would have been devoted to satisfying the physical need for food and drink as a time instead to focus on God and to draw near to him. So that's a little bit on fasting to keep in mind as we examine the answer Jesus gives here. The other thing it helps to know about is something about Jewish wedding ceremonies. And they were preceded by a year-long engagement period. And the bride actually had no idea of the exact day of her wedding because the groom and his wedding party would show up by surprise and take her away. So she had to remain ready and prepared at all times. Now, the Bible doesn't record this, but Jewish tradition, if you research it, which still exists to this day, was that both the bride and the groom were also to engage in fasting in order to prepare themselves for this coming wedding day. But the day of their wedding, in contrast to the fasting, was the biggest party you could ever imagine. In the Old Testament, this went on for seven days, and it was a time of tremendous, tremendous joy. Has anyone here ever been to a Jewish wedding in this culture? No? Wow, surprised there's only a couple of us here. Well, I've been to a few along with my wife. And even today, while they don't last seven days, there is nothing quite like it. The celebration is absolutely over the top. And they really make our Christian weddings look rather drab and boring by comparison. I frankly think there's something we could learn from them. Now, as further background, consider this. In both Isaiah 62, 5 and Hosea 2, 19 through 20, if you want to write those down, God describes himself as being like a bridegroom to his people. So when we put all this together and we consider what we just talked about, about fasting and about Jewish weddings and about God being the bridegroom of his people, what Jesus is saying here is this. While you may fast, as a way of drawing closer to God, as a way of preparing for your wedding. Why, when God himself in the person of Jesus is here as your bridegroom to take you unto himself, would you fast? God is here as a person coming to dine with and celebrate with you, as Jesus has just done in Matthew's house. Why would you then sit off in an isolated place depriving yourself of food and drink so that you could think about a God who is actually right there in your midst. Now, to the well-tuned-in Pharisee, Jesus was doing something else here. He was actually claiming to be God, as he has done before, because fasting was for the purpose of drawing closer to God, whom Jesus is saying is actually here in the person of himself. And he was also claiming to be the bridegroom that God had claimed to be in the Old Testament. And it was that claim to be God that would eventually get him killed because the religious leaders saw that as being blasphemous. In fact, that's that's exactly what Jesus alludes to in the next verse, verse 20, when he says, "...the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day." In other words, he is telling them, look, this time of enjoying my physical presence will not last because I am going to be taken away from you to go to a cross and die for you. And after I'm gone, then there will be plenty of time to go back to your fasting and to seek to draw closer to me in that way. Now, the physical presence of Jesus here on earth that we're seeing here amongst his followers also represented something else that Jesus said back in Mark 1:15, and that is that the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, God has from the very beginning always wanted to dwell with mankind that was what he created in the garden of eden where genesis 3 tells us that adam and eve actually walked and talked in the cool of the day with god but sin you see shattered all of that because god is a holy god and he can tolerate no sin in his presence because sin is so antithetical to his very nature and so as a result of adam and eve's sin they were put out of the garden that's the end of genesis 3 and out of that intimate close relationship with god but god had promised to make a way back for them and for us into that same type of garden relationship that intimate relationship with him through a coming savior who would pay the price for sin and make us holy so that we could now be in the presence of this holy god forever and that promise was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, to live amongst us and then die for us, to pay for our sin and give us His holiness, which was something we could never earn or achieve on our own. That promise, you see, was fulfilled by grace, what we call grace, which is God's good favor being lavishly and lovingly poured out on us. The Pharisees, in contrast, though, were trying to see this promise fulfilled by their own efforts through all of their religious observances and all of their rule keeping. That way of seeking the kingdom of God is what Jesus describes down in verse 21 as an old garment and in verse 22 as old wineskins. And what he's saying there is just as you can't sew new unshrunk fabric over old shrunken fabric because the two will tear apart as the new fabric begins to shrink or just as you can't put new wine which is still going through the process of fermentation, the byproduct of which is a lot of CO2 gas, into old wineskins because it will cause them to burst, Jesus is saying here that you can't blend the fulfillment of the promise of God by grace with religious observances and religious rule-keeping. The two systems of how man interacts with God are simply incompatible, just like trying to pair your iPhone with a non-Apple PC. Furthermore, as Paul would later teach, if you start adding works or human effort to grace as a means of being right with God, then guess what? It's no longer grace. Because grace is a free gift. It is unearned and undeserved favor. It is not a reward for good behavior. And there's nothing you or I can do to earn grace and there's nothing you and I can do to achieve grace or to keep grace once we have it. And also, if our own good works could in any way save us or in any way make us right with God in his sight, then as Galatians 2.21 says, why did Jesus have to die? His death would have all been in vain. You see, the gospel is not about what you can do for God. The gospel is not about what you can do for God. Rather, it is about what God through Christ has already done for you. Religion, like the Pharisees were all caught up in, and we can get caught up in too if we're not careful, always gives you something to do. But the gospel gives you someone to know, Jesus, someone who has already done it all for you. And all you have to do is trust in him. For that is what true saving faith really is all about. Trusting in God to have already, through Jesus and through his death and resurrection, made you, And me, right with himself. And like a bride forsaking all others for the sake of her bridegroom, we need to forsake all other supposed ways to God for the sake of Christ. Just like you can't be married and hang on to your old flames, neither can we be Christians and hang on to our old religious ways, or our old views and concepts of God, or our old views of how we come to Him. So whether we're trying to reach God or draw closer to him through new age crystals, good luck charms, idols, self-efforts, ceremonies, rituals, rote prayers, chanting things, or bowing in certain directions, all of those things need to be let go of when we come to Christ. He is to be our all in all. Now, lest we become legalistic too and look down on people who do such things as we have just described, Let me ask this question. If you have offended someone who loves you very much, maybe your spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a good friend, which would you in your flesh rather do in order to make amends with them and restore the relationship? Go do something for them, maybe give them a really nice gift on the one hand, or on the other hand, go humbly to them with nothing in your hands to apologize and beg for their forgiveness and trust in their mercy. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we would choose doing something for them or giving them something really nice every time because that keeps our pride intact and lets us feel like we've accomplished something. And we don't have to let our guard down then and just trust in the one we've offended to forgive us. So we need to realize that these religious tendencies that we've been looking at are in all of us. And we need to guard against them because, as Jesus says next in verse 23, otherwise our faith will fail because it will be like new wine bursting an old wineskin. It's going to blow up and it'll be a big mess. So, when we offend God, whether it's the first time we realize that we've offended Him and that we're a sinner, or any of the multiple times after that because we are not perfect and we will offend Him, we don't need to give more money to the church. We don't need to go up and sign up to volunteer for something. We don't need to join another Bible study or repeat some religious ritual or pray especially long and loud at the next prayer meeting or have the pastor especially pray for us. We simply need to humbly come to God, admit our fault to Him, and trust in what Jesus has already done for us to forgive us, to cleanse us, and make us right with God. Now in verses 23 to 28, we see Jesus doing something else that brings on yet another critical, try-to-trap-him type of question, also involving a matter of religion. Verse 23 says, One Sabbath he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So we see there it is the Sabbath, and Jesus and his disciples are obviously hungry, and they were doing what any other poor person who was hungry was allowed under that system to do, and that was to engage in the practice of what is called gleaning. Gleaning, that's the word with the G. You see, Old Testament law back in Leviticus 19.8 and also 23.22 provided that when a farm owner would harvest his crops, he was not to take all of them. In fact, he was to leave the edges and the corners of his field unharvested so that those who were hungry and poor could come and gather food for themselves and that is what is going on here so first of all imagine this picture the one who created all things including food the one who is the bread of life and the one who would later feed thousands in the wilderness and whom the bible says owns the cattle on a thousand hills is himself poor and hungry all because He chose to come here as a human being and identify with us in our fallen state. You see, we can come to Jesus not only for help when we are sick or in need of forgiveness, but also when we are poor or we are struggling to provide for our own needs. He gets it. He understands it. He knows what we're going through because he went through it himself. But the Pharisees, oblivious to all those things because they were so focused on all of the religious rules, asked this question in verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, there was nothing in the Bible that said that you couldn't glean for food on the Sabbath day. If you look up those verses I gave you that uh, pre- prescribed the law of gleaning, it doesn't say except for on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was also given by God to man to be a day of rest for man. But exactly what that rest was to consist of was not clearly spelled out in the Bible either. So, not to fear, the Pharisees had come to the rescue by making up all kinds of their own rules as to what you could and could not do on the Sabbath, down to how many steps you could take without breaking the Sabbath rest, down to how many pounds you could lift inside your house or pounds you could lift outside your house without breaking this Sabbath rest. And so to them, Jesus and his disciples were breaking all of those rules. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of a century and a half ago, said in his commentary on this part of the scriptures, he pointed out that if the Pharisees were really concerned about both God's heart and their own rules being kept, they could have offered Jesus and his disciples something to eat. Or they could have given them money to go buy some bread because that would have been the merciful thing to do. And it would have made sure then that Jesus and his disciples weren't breaking all of their Sabbath rules. Remember how Daniel shared last time that in response to the criticism that Jesus received for eating with tax collectors and sinners, Matthew 9.13 says that Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Spurgeon pointed out is a great example of that because the heart of God here would have been to give these men some food, not to make them go hungry just because it was the Sabbath. Now, look at the beginning of the response Jesus gives in verse 25. He starts with these four words, have you never read? What a rebuke. Just those four words would have been to a Pharisee. You see, these were guys who had memorized entire books of the Bible. And here is Jesus challenging them with, have you never read? And then Jesus goes on to use scripture, which they had probably memorized, to school them by reminding them of a time in the Old Testament, which can be found, by the way, in 1 Samuel 21, when David and his men were running from Saul and were hungry and not being able to find any food, they had entered the house of God and asked the high priest for food. But all the high priest had was some holy sacrificial bread, which was known as the bread of the presence. and Yet he nonetheless gave that to David and his men to eat. So this is a clear precedent in legal terms of how the heart of god was to desire mercy over sacrifice and that's what jesus is citing here now think of the irony of this scene here we have these guys who had made up all their own rules for how to observe one of god's commands and yet here is the lawgiver himself in their midst the one who gave the sabbath command in the first place telling them that they've got it all wrong you know you can study the bible and even memorize the bible like these men did here, and yet still miss the whole point of it if you don't come to it with a submissive heart. The Pharisees, you see, dared to put themselves in the place of God and make up rules just like God does, and it blinded them to the truth of God's word. And we can do that, too. I once knew a guy at another church who had literally memorized the entire book of James, But he was an extremely arrogant person, always looking down on others. And you know what? He didn't live out one lick of the book of James, even though he had it all perfectly memorized. You see, we've got to put ourselves always under the Bible, not over it, or we're never going to understand any of it. Now, the other thing that the Pharisees were missing out on here, in both their obsession with fasting and with their Sabbath rules, was the presence of God himself. They were so tied down with their religious rules, that they missed out on the presence of God himself in their midst. They were so restrictive beyond what the word of God said and their view of God and what they could do in life that they missed the work of God going on in their midst through the coming of their long-awaited Messiah. Clinging to all the religious icons and practices, they missed the real thing when he showed up on their front doorstep They had such a reactionary response to Jesus and everything he did that they missed out on the most profound movement of God ever on the face of the earth, the ushering in of his kingdom through the coming of Jesus to earth. And, you know, we can still be that way today. The spirit blows, and we choose to say, oh, that can't be possible. Or that God doesn't act today the way he did back in biblical times. Or supernatural things happen, and we attribute it to natural causes or ministries fail, or ministries succeed, and we attribute it all to the planning that was done or the methodologies that were used or to the people who were in charge of it. You see, both fasting and the Sabbath were meant to be pictures of being with God, fasting as people temporarily removed themselves from material concerns to focus on God, and the Sabbath as they rested and had time to think about God. Yet neither of those were the real thing. They weren't God. They were just pictures of God. So many of these re- religious rules were just a shadow of what was to come. In fact, that is exactly how they are described in the book of Colossians when the problem of legalism is addressed in the second half of chapter 2. And it says this in Colossians two sixteen and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. How silly and sad to be clinging to a picture when the real thing is right there. And yet that is what these Pharisees were doing. You know, Janet and I are blessed with three wonderful grown-up daughters. Uh, All but one of them uh, have moved away to other communities with their husbands. And so it's not very often that we get everybody together as a family. We get lots of pictures all the time of them and our granddaughter and we spend time looking at those pictures and love them. It brings joy to our hearts. We open our iPhones every day and look at the new pictures they've sent. But a couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity to get together as a family for the first time in a number of years, all of us together. And as a parent at my age, it's, it's a joy to look across the table and see all of your kids there, and be able to look them in the face and their husbands and our granddaughter and have them all actually there. But how silly it would have been for Janet and I to have, instead of joining them at the dinner table to do that, to have sat in our bedroom and kept looking at the pictures we had of them. That would be just crazy, right, when they're actually here. Why would we look at the pictures? And yet that's what the Pharisees are doing here as they're so focused on their fasting, So focused on their Sabbath-keeping, they're just pictures of the real thing. They miss the real thing when he's right there in their midst. So to end our section of Scripture, Jesus reminds them in verse 27 of the purpose of the Sabbath, that it was for man, and for man to have a time of rest, not that we should be burdened by all kinds of Sabbath-rule-keeping. And then in a final rebuke to the Pharisees, Jesus says that he is Lord— Lord over even the Sabbath. And from that, the Pharisees would have concluded at least two things. First, that he was claiming again to be the only one who could make the rules pertaining to the Sabbath and say what could be done in it and what could not. And second, because of that, that he was God. For he had already taken the title of Son of Man unto himself, and now he is saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And if he was claiming to be Lord over something as sacred and holy to a devout Jew as the Sabbath, then he was certainly claiming to be Lord over everything else as well. Now, we've made an example out of the Pharisees a lot this morning. And in one sense, that's okay because Jesus does it in the Bible, and it's right here in our text. But here's what we've got to remember. Jesus loves the Pharisees, and Jesus loves other religious people of the world just like he loves the common sinner that we saw him with in the last message last week. And he came to be Lord and Savior for those who are like the Pharisees. Because both of these types of people fall short of the glory of God and need the salvation that only Jesus can bring. Romans 1, perhaps the greatest explanation of Christian theology in the entire Bible, or actually the whole book of Romans is, but Romans 1 is written to the common Gentile sinner, Romans 2 is written to the religious Jewish person. But then you get to Romans 3, and Romans 3.23 says that all, meaning both, both types, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then the wonderful solution comes in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, it must have been miserable to have lived as a Pharisee. The entire Bible has some 600 commands or so in it, but they had added thousands upon thousands to that. And they lived under this constant pain and constant threat of maybe breaking one of those rules and then feeling ostracized by God and looked down upon by their fellow Pharisees. And I'm sure that in a crowd this size, there's some of you here today who live like that who've put all kinds of rules on top of what the Bible says and how you would govern your life and your relationship with God. And it must be miserable. Maybe you had a legalistic upbringing. Maybe you came out of a legalistic church. Maybe you've just forgotten what grace is all about, and it's not about how well are you performing, but rather how well Jesus performed for you, which was absolutely perfectly. And so you've imposed all kinds of these rules on yourself and you're living with a heavy burden on your back, just like these Pharisees. And also like them, you may be missing out on the real God, Jesus, who is here in our midst this morning. All the rule-keeping that was exemplified by the Sabbath laws was fulfilled in Christ because he is our rest, our rest from all of our spiritual striving to make ourselves right with God. Hebrews 4.9 speaks of Jesus as being our Sabbath rest. And in Matthew 11, 28 to 29, Jesus gave us these amazing words about himself. Listen to this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This verse is so awesome but it gets so misused in the church today. Jesus is not talking there about not working hard to support yourself and just slouching around expecting him to take care of everything. He's not talking there about time management principles. He's not talking about building margins into your day or boundaries into your life. Rather, he is talking there about giving up all of our striving to make ourselves right with God because he has already done that for us with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we no longer need to view God as our judge in a courtroom or as some type of tough taskmaster. And instead we can see him as our father in the family room or at the dinner table, ready to hear from us and wanting to enjoy spending time with us. So if you're here this morning and you don't feel that way about God yet, you need to meet the real Jesus that we've seen in the scriptures this morning, the real you, just as you are, needs to come to the real Jesus, just as we have seen him. And when you do, you will find rest for your tired soul. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that although your standard is absolute perfection, Lord, you have not called us to reach that on our own, that you have done it for us. You have made it possible for us in Christ, who lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life, died a death he didn't deserve, Lord, to pay a debt for us that we could never pay of our sin before you. And I pray here, Lord, that if there be any that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would feel that call on, your, on their hearts right now to confess their need of you, to confess that they are a sinner and that they need you to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, if, if anyone here is feeling that right now, Lord, may they not attribute it to natural or physical things. May they recognize that's a supernatural act of your Holy Spirit. Going on in our midst right now, and for the rest of us here, Lord, who already know You, Lord, would You purge out of our hearts any remnants of any legalistic, Pharisaical tendencies in us, Lord, that may be causing us too to be blinded to the real You, or may be causing us to look down on others, Lord, or may be causing us to see You as a tough taskmaster who we've always got to keep pleased, Lord. May we instead just. Embrace you this morning as a God who desires to sit around the table with us, to recline at table with us, Lord, to eat and drink with us, to enjoy life with us, because you have paid the price for our sin. Lord, may we stop our spiritual striving to make ourselves right with you. May we trust fully and 100% in what you have done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.